0: Christmas isn't always merry and bright. Sometimes it evokes memories of lost loved ones, failed dreams, and disappointments. And when the world is celebrating that silent night when Christ was born, some of us are enduring our own dark and quiet night. But we must remember in the dark what we have known to be true in the light. The truth that sustains us through difficulty, hardship, loneliness, and despair. You are loved. God is near. God can redeem this. You are not alone. I love Sundays like this because uh, it really shows you who the most righteous people in the church are. <laughs> you just look around to the people next to you and say, congratulations, you're going to heaven. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of apropos that we would have weather like this today because I think um, just the weather outside though frightful, as they say in the song, uh, might illustrate kind of where this series is going. Uh, because it's weather like this where there's a danger that you might hit a, hit a skid, right? Hit a little bit of black ice or you're coming through an intersection and you have neglected to put your winter tires on just yet. And the car kind of starts to get out of control. And no matter how many times you jerk the steering wheel one way or the other, no matter how many times you pump those brakes. I've got a friend that always used to say to me, if you hit a skid going through an intersection, when in doubt, gas it out. That doesn't work, by the way. And there's this moment of panic and this moment of fear when the car kind of gets out of control a little bit. I hit one of those skids, spiritually speaking, about two years ago right at this time. Uh, spiritually, uh, things just kind of went dry and there was a lot of disillusionment and confusion. No matter what I did, all those things that you try to kind of get the car back into control, you know, you turn the steering wheel this way and that and you pump the brakes and gas it out. No matter what I did, my prayers kind of just seemed to hit the ceiling and reflect right back down to me. And I'd read the Bible and it wasn't alive like it was before and I'd read Christian literature and it just didn't seem to, Speak to me. Some of you may have even been here during that time. I had a a rough time spiritually. Pastors go through that too, by the way. And during that time, um, an individual handed me a book and said, why don't you check this book out? And it wasn't new Christian literature. In fact, the book was written in the 16th century by a man I have nothing in common with. He was a monk, Spanish, And he was an anti-reformer, so all of the guys that are kind of my theological heroes, John Calvin and Martin Luther, he thought all those guys were crazy. So I should have really hated this guy. His name was St. John of the Cross. I don't think that's the name his mother gave him, by the way. I think he probably got that over time. And he wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Maybe you have. And have you ever read a book where You're just, you're reading and you're going, how did this person know that about me? He's a Spanish monk from the 16th century. How is it that he is wrapping language around emotions that I can't even articulate? He's reading my mail. He's sitting quietly outside of my house in his car for hours on end just to get my routine down. He knows it. And this is 400 years ago. So, what you know kind of came to the surface for me through that Christmas season two years ago, I, I am endeavoring to bring to bear to our congregation this Christmas season that sometimes we go through a dark night of the soul. And if you've never gone through one of those, just keep living. You'll get there. And sometimes we 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 know. What triggers that dark night of the soul? It's the loss of a loved one, it's it's uh, the, the fracturing of a relationship, it's 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 you know the 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 pain of trying to have children and you can't, or losing a child and a miscarriage, or for us failed adoption. We went through that, and I've known at times in my life. You know what? I'm going through this very dark place, spiritually, emotionally, whatever, and I know what triggered this thing. And then there are moments when you've got absolutely no idea. I mean, circumstantially, you should be happy as a clam, right? But for whatever reason, this spiritual darkness, uh, what Charles Spurgeon used to call the black dog of ministry for pastors, actually, just seems to be nipping at your heels at all times. And spiritually speaking, it's just slugging and and trudging, and and you just feel stuck and broken and in disrepair and, again, disillusioned. And over the course of uh, several months of kind of doing my own soul searching and staying as disciplined as I could and going to God with these things, I felt like He impressed upon my heart. And as I even have talked to other staff members and congregants here, these are truths. For as a matter of fact, that that so many of us, when we go through that dark night of the soul, feel like we need to hang on to for dear life. It's like that buoy in a storm. The only thing that's going to keep us afloat is this truth, or in this case, these four truths about God. And so our hope, uh, just as Dave shared, this Christmas season, is is not to really say anything new. You know, you're not going to hear any... You're not going to walk away from here each and every Sunday morning, especially if you're a churchgoer, a regular churchgoer, and go... Oh my gosh, I've never heard that before, that God loves me. Never heard that before. Brand new information. Probably not going to walk away with that. But my hope is that these truths over the next four weeks would really saturate our soul. They would kind of take a grip in our heart so that they could sustain us through these dark nights of the soul. We're going to learn from Scripture. We're going to learn from St. John of the Cross. We're going to learn just from experience and hopefully... Uh, these truths will encourage you and sustain you this Christmas season. And the first, just as Dave mentioned earlier, is simply that you are loved. You are loved. Now it's challenging as a preacher to talk about this truth: you are loved, because in modern kind of times and in modern um, you know perceptions of the world, we've really screwed this word "love" up pretty bad. You know what I mean? like the way we talk about it on social media and the way that we talk about it in movies. And maybe even the best example is the way that we talk about it in modern love songs. We, we just have really messed this up. So let's do a little pop quiz this morning. We're gonna do a lyric quiz. Are you ready for it? And you need to talk back to me on this one. I know that we're um, kind of down a little bit in numbers this morning. You're the remnant. I get that. You need to talk back to me a little bit because I'm I want to. i going to give you a lyric, and I need you to give me the artist, okay? Uh, the lyric is someone was crazy in love. Who was crazy in love? Yeah, it was, of course, St. Beyonce. That's right. Uh, one of the greatest theologians of our time. Who sang about a crazy little thing called love? Michael Buble, did someone say Michael Buble? Get V behind me. Golly. Queen, of course, Freddie Mercury saying about a crazy little thing called love. Who said that your love is like bad medicine? Bon Jovi. I need a respirator because I'm running out of breath. So You're an all-night generator. You know? Wrap in stockings and a dress. When you find your medicine, you take what you can get. Well, if there's something better, baby, well, I haven't found it yet. Oh, your love is like... Yeah. Somebody, somebody say praise Jesus who's saying um, who I, I don't care who you are where you're from what you did as long as you love me that's the Backstreet Boys this is about the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life please do not make life decisions based on Backstreet Boys songs like I, I, as long as you love me I'm good cool I set your cat on fire good you still love me yes I do fine don't care what you did As long as you love me. Very narcissistic as well. I mean, these songs are just stupid. We talk about people falling in love and being crazy in love. And what the Bible needs to do for us is unravel a little bit of our modern perceptions and help us understand God's love for us. And so Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 15, and he starts it this way. He says, there was a man who had two sons. What Jesus is going to talk about here is God's love for you. Not, not, not just God's love for us, listen close. God's love for you. He wants us to understand it. He wants us to get it. He wants us to pull back the veil, or he wants to pull back the veil just a little bit so that we can get a glimpse into what the glory and magnitude and splendor of God's love is for you. And here's what he tells us it's like a father loves his kids. So, in other words, in order to understand God's love, you must know that he's a dad, you must know that he's a father. And this becomes problematic too, right? Because you might not have had a great dad. Your dad might have been absent. He might have been abusive. He might have left early. You might still have issues with your dad, which makes it difficult for you to see God in all his glory as a heavenly father because your earthly father wasn't great. So what I'm going to do this morning is talk about my kids. Now, I'm not a perfect dad by any stretch of the imagination, but I do love my children very Very much. And so I know I talk about my kids a lot, and I know I use them as illustrations a lot because they're little sinners, and that really is helpful in demonstrating uh, original sin. Uh, But I'm going to talk about how much I love my kids. And my hope today is that you don't just hear about how much I love my children, but you hear about God's fatherly love for you today. Jesus continues his story. He says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, this is an offensive request in our culture, but it would have been exponentially more offensive in first century Jewish culture. What he's saying to his dad is, you're as good as dead to me. I'd rather have the money. Because that's how you get an inheritance, right? Somebody's got to die. He said, I'd rather you be dead and have the money than to have you alive and continue a relationship with you. He's about to extract from his father money that he believes he deserves, and he tells his dad, it's okay if you were dead. That's fine. very first thing Jesus wants us to know about God's fatherly love for us is that kids are the worst. Children are the worst. If you're considering having children now, please think again. They are an absolute pain in the rear end. And here's the deal. I'm speaking facetiously, obviously, but stick with me because this is part of what Jesus wants us to know. If you don't believe me that kids are the worst, meet the Branson family. Did you read about the Branson family this week on the news? This is the Branson family. Lovely little family, aren't they? This is little Lucy. Look at her, how cute she is, Lucy. Say, oh, yeah, very cute. You see these little shoes that Lucy's holding? They're adult shoes. Lucy jammed those up her nose this week. Her mother was able able to retrieve one of them with tweezers. The other one, she had to go to the emergency room to get out of her nose, little Lucy Branson. That emergency room trip cost her parents $3,531 to get a doll shoe out of that moron's nose. That begs the question, what can you get for (laughs) $3,531? Well, there are a number of things you can get for $3,531. You can get six days, seven nights at Sandals for you and your significant other. You can get winter tires for life with $3,531. You can eat for a year with $3,531. In other words, kids are the worst. The very first year of a child's life will cost you conservatively $14,350. In order to raise a child from age zero to age 17 will cost you $310,224. That's without private school. That's without activities. It's just going to cost you that amount of money. Once again, begs the question, what can you get for $310,224? Well, you can get this. How? house in Phoenix, Arizona where I moved from. A house with a pool and everything for what it would cost you to raise a punk child. You could get this Bentley Continental GT and have $90,000 left over for rims. You could buy this Cessna. You could buy a plane and have $50,000 left over with which you could purchase me a 1968 Camaro Supersport which is available on eBay right now if you're thinking of Christmas gifts for me. Um, In other words, kids are the worst. That's the moral of this story. This kid requests from his father an absolutely offensive thing and looks what his dad does. He divides his property between them. That's the heart of a dad. Because this dad's no fool. You understand what I'm saying? He understands what's happening here. He knows that he raised this child from when he was knee-high to a grasshopper. He changed this boy's diapers. He knows that he's given all that he's had already emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially, just poured time and energy and effort into this child. And he says, I'd rather you be dead and take the money and run. And his dad says, okay. The very first thing I want you to know about God's love for you reflected in my love for my children is that his love is completely irrational. Give me grace when I say this. It's like God checks his brain at the door when it comes to you. It it doesn't make any sense why he would lavish his grace upon you. You can't bring him anything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I make a lot more money than my children. They can't bring me anything. I'm smarter than both of them. Combined. I'm much more well-read. They're totally and completely dependent upon me. And Canaan's even made it more challenging because it used to be he was totally dependent on me, but he was stationary. Now he crawls. He's fully ambulatory, and he's getting into things, and he's throwing things around. And still, I love him. For what reason? I don't know. It's completely irrational. That's God's love for you. It causes him to do things that people might think are foolish. In fact, in Tim Keller's book entitled The Prodigal God, he says that in this story, the prodigal is not the son because a prodigal is a spendthrift, is somebody that's unwise with money and pours money down the tubes. He says the the person that's the prodigal in this story is really the father. Dividing his property between these children when he knows full well what's going to happen, that's how much God loves you. It's completely irrational. My kids are able to manipulate me because I have checked my brain at the door. Canaan already, he can't even talk. He can't read. He's an idiot. He can't do anything. 15 months old. He should be reading by now. And he's able to manipulate me. Kaya is able to pull at my heartstrings. It's not my mind. It's not my logic. It's my heart of love for her that she tugs at to get what she wants. She comes into our room almost every single morning. She tickles me on the foot to wake me up. She crawls into bed and she goes, Daddy, can we snuggle? Yeah, babe. Sure. We snuggle. The thing you need to know about Kaya is that she loves to watch shows. And we try to kind of limit her screen time, so like a lot of you parents do, limit TV time and phone time and you know, computer time and all that stuff. So she'll crawl into bed and say, Daddy, can we snuggle? And I say, sure, babe, and I wrap her up in my arms. And she goes, Daddy, maybe for two minutes, then we can watch a show? <laughs> you manipulative little turd. You know, it's just, you are a manipulative. You know why? Because my love for her is completely irrational. That's God's love for you. This is what Jesus wants us to know. This is how dads love their kids. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Do you understand what's happening here? This is a euphemism for something. He just parties his brains out. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need, understatement of the year. So much need, in fact, that he went to hire himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. If you know anything about first century Judaism, you know that this would be the most offensive thing he could be doing. He's degraded himself and debased himself to the lowest of the low. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. I would even eat pig food. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, in rereading this passage this week and studying it over and over, and some of you, this is a familiar passage. Something stuck out to me for the very first time. I don't know if you've ever done that before when you read scripture and something just kind of pops out to you in a new way, and this is it. I will arise and go to my father. There is an assumption that's driving this choice. Do you know what it is? He's got grace for me, right? Who would would get up and go back to his dad? You've just taken everything he owns and squandered it, partied it away. I'm not gonna run to my friends. I'm not gonna run to other people. I'm not gonna run to my employer. I'm not even gonna run to myself. I'm gonna arise and go back to my dad because I know his love for me is completely irrational. And he arose and went back to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I love these words here. His father ran, embraced and kissed. He pursued, he went after. In fact, the Bible kind of pictures this earthly father as walking out to the edge of his property on a daily basis and looking out onto the horizon, longing for his son to come home. Here's what the Bible is teaching us about God's fatherly love for you, that his love for you is wooing. It's wooing. This is why this young man has the assumption that if I arise and go to my father, he's going to show me grace. It's as if his father's love is wooing him back and his father runs and embraces him and kisses him, woos him back, the father. The father. Now, I know that for guys, especially for men, it's like, hey, nobody's ever wooed me, you know? Like this is a Jesus is my boyfriend and it's very weird and I don't want to, like, but listen, here's, here's what's happening is that God's love is calling us back to himself. It's his love that transforms hearts. It's his love that turns us away from our sin and back to him. In fact, Romans chapter two says it this way, that it's God's kindness, his mercy, his grace is meant to lead us to repentance. I love the message translation of Romans chapter two, verse four, it says, in kindness, he, that's God, takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into a radical life change. In other words, God's love woos us out of that dark night of the soul and into joy his love doesn't leave us where we are longing to eat the pods the pigs so the son said to him father i've sinned against heaven and before you i'm no longer worthy to be called your son but the father said to his servants bring quickly the best robe and put it on him The ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. In other words, the father says, bring the best of what I've got. You know that God gives his best for those he loves. His best ring, his best robe, his best calf. Bring the best of all I have. God gave his best for you and continues to do so even now because of his extraordinary, unconditional, and extravagant love for you. There is nothing that my children could ask for that I would not give to them if it was good for them. I would give anything and everything. Give my absolute best best for both of my kids, the best of my time, the best of my money, the best of my resources, the best of my focus. They get my absolute best and you get God's best. In other words, for God so loved the world that he gave his best, right? His only son that whomsoever would believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Parents who radically and extravagantly love their children, just like God radically and extravagantly loves you, give their best for their children. I have a friend who's been uh, sober from IV heroin usage for about 10 years now. Before he was sober, he was addicted for about 10 years. Over the course of that time, he was in and out of rehab several different times. He really milked his mom dry in terms of uh, her finances and even emotions and all this stuff. He's a very close friend, actually, and helped him get um, into rehab on multiple occasions, helped him eat when he had kind of flushed all his money down the toilet and he was homeless. And towards the end of his uh, addiction, he went to his mother and said, I want to go to rehab again for like the seventh time. But it's going to cost me $50,000. His mom had nothing left. I mean, she had exhausted all of her resources. She had given her absolute best for this kid. And he had really squandered it on reckless living. So she emptied out her retirement. Left her penniless. And she didn't hesitate. He went to rehab, cost her 50 grand. Three days before the end of that rehab, he checked himself out, went right back to using. And a year later, when the court ordered him to go to rehab or go to jail, his mother stood up for him in court, talked about how much she loved him, talked about she would never stop loving him, that whatever she had, and she had very little left at that point, she would still give all Everything for him. That's how God feels about you. By the way, that was the last rehab he ever went to. Doing great now. Working at a rehab, helping other people get sober. And that's how God feels about you. He's just never going to stop. Never going to stop giving his best for you. The best robe, the best shoes, the best fattened calf. All of God's resources. He exhausts in order to demonstrate his great love for you. The father makes a second comment. Look up here, he says, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Look at the change that happens because of this father's love. He was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost and now he is found that God's love is transformational as well. God's love changes us God's love makes us different. We were lost and now we are found. We were dead and now we are alive again. So it's not just a love that extravagantly pours out blessing, but it's a love that forms us into the likeness of Christ. It's a love that rescues us, a love that redeems us, a love love that turns us away from a life that pursues death into a life that pursues eternal life. It's transformational. It's an active love. It's a love that makes a difference. Each and every day. This is the kind of love that God has for you. And that's just a little sliver. That's just a little glimpse. So the last question I want to answer this morning before we go is, is simply, what does this mean? What does God's love mean? God loves me, okay, so so what does that mean for me day in and day out? What does that mean for me when I, you know, have to commute two and a half hours home after service today because of the snow, right? What does that mean for me when I get up for work tomorrow morning or go to school? What does that mean for me on Tuesday afternoon when I'm working through issues in my family? What does that mean for me Thursday, Friday, Saturday when I'm continuing to endure this dark night of the soul? What does that mean? Well, the first thing it means, and if you are jotting down notes, please jot this down, is that you can trust him. You can trust him each and every time in the scripture when we are encouraged to trust God, when we are commanded to trust God, the catalyst there or the foundation there or the truth that helps us to do that is that God loves us. You know, I don't ask my kids to trust me because I want them to respect my authority. I don't say obey and do what I tell you to do. Trust me because I'm the older one here much older. (laughs) I say, trust me and do what I say, because I love you more than you could ever imagine. I I love you more than anyone else on the planet. And this is what God calls us to. Now, when you're enduring that dark night of the soul, when you're going through it, You can trust God even in the midst of that because his love is doing something great in your life. In fact, St. John of the Cross wrote this in Dark Night of the Soul. He said, God desires to lead them, those of us who are enduring that dark night, farther. He seeks to bring them out of that ignoble kind of love to a higher degree of love for him. In other words, even in those most difficult and painful moments in your life, God is using them to draw you closer to himself. And even though you're going, you know what, I'd rather the pain just stop. I'd rather the circumstances just change. Why is God using them to draw me closer to himself? Why? Because he knows better, and guess what? You can trust him. He knows better, and he loves you, and he has your best in mind. And because of his extraordinary love for you, you can trust him that he's using it to draw you closer to himself. I know that it's difficult. I know that it's hard and painful. I get that, and so does God. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows. But he's using those dark moments to draw you to himself, which is your best. And so you can trust him in the midst of it. Second thing it means is that you can tell him anything. You can tell him anything. I don't know what it is that makes us think we can fool God when we pray. You ever been around people that, like, the minute they start to pray, they become the holiest person on the planet? Or maybe that's you. Maybe you're one of those types of people. I can sometimes be that type of person, you know. It's just having a conversation, normal conversation, and then it's time, even before service, all right, let's pray together before we, and then all of a sudden it's me going like this. Oh, holy Lord. Lord, you are holy, Lord. And we desire above thee none other than thee, Lord. And God's going, that's bull hockey, right? I know you. You don't desire me more than anything else. You desire a nice warm pot of kanji after service more than you desire me. right? Some of you are going, yes, Jesus, yes. Is there kanji available after the service? No, go to Kanji Queen. You can be honest with God, and he's not going to unlove you. You can tell him anything. You can be honest with him. You know that about 25% of the Psalms, 150 Psalms in the Bible, about 25% of them are lament Psalms. Look over here at Psalm 13. Look, psalmist writes this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long is this going to last? I mean, this doesn't sound like a polite conversation, does it? Because it's not. The psalmist is being totally and completely honest before God because the psalmist knows God loves him or her. God loves you too, so you can be totally and completely honest with God. God is never, ever, ever going to stop loving you. There's nothing you can say. He already knows. So just be honest with him. Every night, we tuck Kaya in. And uh, either Amy or myself lay with her for a few minutes. Uh, We bless her. We listen to a song and pray and do some other things. And then we leave the room. And Kaya's told, don't call out. Don't call out. Because sometimes she calls out and she goes, I have a hangnail you know, literally, I have a hangnail, you know, I'm like, um, that's not real, you know, um. so she, don't call out, so this is a few weeks ago, we tuck her in, we, you know, she's in bed, she's gone to the bathroom last time, brushed her teeth, everything, we tuck her in, and we both uh, leave the room, and I'm in the other room, and uh, about five, six minutes later, I hear Kaya call out, daddy, daddy, and, of course, my love for her is completely irrational, right? So I don't leave her in there. I run in there. <gasps> What's going on, right? She goes, I'm scared. I'm like, well, that's stupid. That's not true. Right? So I'm like, all right, babe, I'll lay with you just for a minute. I lay with her, and we just go nose to nose. She's five years old. We just go nose to nose. And I said, babe, you don't need to be scared. Dad loves you. You're safe here. Dad would never let anything happen to you. Dad would use every power he's got to protect you from any harm that would come to you. You do not need to be scared because you are loved and you can go to sleep. Is that okay, babe? She goes, yes, daddy. But did you brush your teeth already? I said, well, I don't know if that's any of your business, but no. And she said, yeah, because your breath smells like a fout. Translated, your breath smells like a fart is what my four-year-old said to me. Five, five-year-old. Now, like any great dad, I simply told her that she's the one that smells like a fart. <laughs> then I called her stupid and then I didn't let her eat for three days. So she learned, she learned. I hope that you know I'm speaking facetiously. I I really hope, because if not, CAS is getting a call this afternoon, man. There is nothing that Kaya could ever say to me that make make me love her any less. I have good parents. I do. I have great parents. I absolutely know there is nothing I could ever say to my mom and dad that would make me love make them love me any less. They might be hurt. They might disagree. They might think it was silly or foolish. Nothing, nothing would make them love me less. Nothing, nothing would make my children, would make me love my children any less. Now listen to me. Nothing you could ever say to God will make him love you any less. So that means you could tell him anything. You be completely honest with him. These circumstances stink. I am not happy with where I'm at right now. I'm sad, I'm grieving, I'm lonely, I'm insecure. You can even use words with God that we wouldn't use in church just to get it all out because he's never gonna love you any less. Here's the last one and we'll be done. Because of God's love for you, it means that you can love yourself. You can love yourself. You can be okay with who you are. Now, Now, in our culture and in our society where everybody's talking about self-love, like Kai goes to this little dance class, and at the end of this dance class, they do this cheer, like the 10 girls in the dance class, and they put their hands in the middle, and they're like, I am awesome, and they do that, you know, and I am courageous, and I am wonderful, and I'm thinking the whole time, I'm like, well, no, you're not. You're not any of those things. You're a pain. You cost me $310,000. I could have got a Bentley, you know, like... So uh, what I'm not talking about here is, is coddling ourselves and telling ourselves that we're just great and grand all the time. Here's what I'm saying is that even in the midst of your deepest pain and brokenness, even in the midst of your foolish choices, you can still make the decision to walk toward God because he loves you. You can still make the decision to do what's best for you, which is, listen closely, pursuing God. I'm not saying do what's best for you, like go get a new car, do what's best for you, uh, jump out of that marriage that you don't like because you get to define what's best for you. No, 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 no. God defines what's best for you and what's best for you is to pursue him. And so no matter where you are in life, because God loves you, you can love yourself and make great choices for yourself. In fact, this is what happens with this young man that says the Bible says that when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, other translations say, when he looks at his circumstances, and goes, this is not good anymore. He makes the decision to walk away from that because of the extravagant and wooing love of his heavenly father. So in the midst of your pain and difficulty and challenge, please, please, God begs you and I invite you to be reconciled with God and make the decision that's good for you, which is repentance, forgiveness, and walking in the newness of life that Jesus offers you. Because God loves you, you. Can love you. This is the last thing I'll say, and, and, and we'll be done. Every night, we, when we tuck Kaya in, we uh, we bless her, we pray, and we do a few other things, and, and we do the same thing with Canaan. Bless him too. And it's just speaking over them this truth about their mom and dad's great extravagant, completely irrational love for them. So I want to tell you how we bless Kaya. It's the same thing every night. I want to tell you how we bless Canaan. It's the same thing every night. And perhaps today you might hear the voice of God telling you what he thinks of you as his child. Every night I say, Kaya, you are my joy you know that? You're God's joy. You make him smile. Say, Kaya, you are a gift to me. You are God's grace to me. You are a favor that I did not deserve. Let God say this to your heart today. There's nothing you could do that would make me love you more. There's nothing you could do that would make me love you less. I love you just because you're my daughter. Kaya Elizabeth, sincere Cooper. Always will be. So My love for you will always be. Let that fatherly heart of God sink in today. That no matter what you do, no matter what you say, nothing will ever change. His great and extraordinary love for you. This is how we bless Canaan every night. Canaan, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you know that because of Jesus? You are God's beloved son or daughter and you bring him joy he is well pleased in you and with you and for that reason my son you can be strong and courageous for the Lord God is with you wherever you go which actually sets up next week quite well we'll talk about God being near that he is with us wherever we go would you pray with me God, just as we acknowledge to begin our time today, there's nothing new, (laughs) nothing new on the table, nothing new that was said this morning. But God, I believe your spirit can speak profound words of truth to the deepest parts of who we are, even when it's something that we may have heard before. So God, my prayer for each individual in this room is that they would know your great love for them today, not just intellectually, but the very depths of their being. God, that we would know that you give your best for us, that you love us in completely irrational and illogical ways, that we can trust you, that we can tell you anything, and then we can even love ourselves and say, gosh, Because you love me, I can love me. And that we entrust ourselves even to your transforming love. Make us more like Jesus every day. God, thank you for uh, this time to gather together today. I pray again that this truth would permeate, saturate our hearts and souls. Today, this afternoon, this week.